We love tangents on this podcast. And most of them involve food, probably because we do a lot of our interviews in the evening. (laughs) (laughs) Just thinking about dinner. And I'm Tom. This week we're talking to Heather McEwen, a first year PhD student in the School of Chemistry. Heather's PhD is exactly our flavour, an interdisciplinary project bridging physics, chemistry, biology and medicine. She's looking into improving the detection of Raman spectroscopy. And before you get your hopes up, we're not talking about the noodles. Raman spectroscopy is a technique that can be used to read the chemical fingerprint of a substance or molecule and has applications ranging from forensics to detecting forged paintings. Heather hopes to use this technique to study the metabolic changes that can lead to organ rejection and ultimately she hopes to boost successful transplantation rates. Uh, She can explain it a lot better than I can so let's just jump in. Before we start, this podcast is sponsored by GrinoBio One, supplying laboratory, diagnostic, and medical products to research institutions, higher education, the NHS, and others across the UK. For details of the full product range, visit www.gbo.com. Okay, well, wonderful stuff. Thank you so much for joining us, Heather. Could you please introduce yourself for, the, for our listeners and tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Heather. Nice to meet you. I'm 23. I'm a first year PhD student at Edinburgh University. I moved here recently from Glasgow. So I was born in Glasgow and I did my undergraduate master's at Glasgow Uni in physics. And then I moved over here and now I'm doing a PhD uh, PhD in chemistry. So I (laughs) I changed school. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's been really, really good so far. Was um, did you always know you wanted to do a PhD? So you went straight from undergrad to PhD. So was that like was mm-hmm. that your your aim, or did it just happen? Um, no, that wasn't my aim at all. I was actually, I I think I was a little bit lost, like a lot of people are when they're in their undergraduate. Um, and I actually thought that I wanted to go into teaching for a while. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I would still enjoy teaching, and I, I still do a lot of teaching in my PhD now. Um, but yeah, I thought I wanted to do teaching for a while, and then I did my first summer internship in a research group, um, and I, I just really liked it. I really, really enjoyed it, and I really liked the atmosphere. I really liked the group. I really liked that I didn't have to come in at nine in the morning, <laughs> which is great. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, I really liked it, and then I did another summer internship in a different group and then I did my master's in that group and it just kind of went from there I think I think I just mm-hmm. kind of gradually I just kept doing things that I liked and I ended up here <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so I mean you've kind of you mentioned that you jumped ship a little bit from mm-hmm. physics to, to chemistry and yep. if you could tell us a little bit about what you're working on with the Raman spectroscopy are there similarities between physics and and that yeah just mm-hmm. let's let's know a little bit about it and just to be clear, this is R A M A N, not the noodle. Not kind. the noodle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Raman rather than ramen. Yeah, so right now I'm working on uh, a technique called Raman spectroscopy. Raman spectroscopy is a branch of vibrational spectroscopy. So there's a few different types. And Raman spectroscopy relies on the phenomenon known as Raman scattering. So 
what happens is if you have your sample, say for example, I have a piece of diamond um, and I fire my laser at that, the laser will be made up of light, uh, which are photons, and the photons scatter off of the diamond inelastically, which means the photons lose or gain some energy depending on the substance and depending on the energy levels of the atoms in the diamond. And so that scattered light can then be collected into a spectrometer. And from that, you can then form a Raman spectrum for that substance. And what's really useful is that different materials and molecules will scatter the laser differently. And so the Raman spectrum that is formed is unique to that particular substance. So there will be a Raman spectra for diamond. There's a Raman spectra for polystyrene. You know, there's uh, they have they're very recognisable. Um, so it's a bit like a chemical fingerprint. And for example, Raman spectra can tell you which molecules are present in your sample and in what concentration. And it's really good because it doesn't require any kind of preparation like labelling or staining and it leaves the sample intact with little to no damage as well. When you get the full spectrum of your entire sample, how easy is it from that full spectrum to to break down which molecules are in it? Yeah, yeah. So it, it does depend on the sample. Some samples have very intense peaks that you can point at and be like, oh, yeah, that's this thing. Whereas other ones are a bit more complicated and maybe they have peaks that are less intense or they have peaks that uh, have like a small double peak and, you know, things like that. So some are a little bit more complicated than others. But a Raman spectrum has intensity, so like the how much light you're getting versus the uh, something called Raman shift on the x-axis. And Raman shift is just the difference in, it's like the difference in wavelength or wave number between the wavelength of your laser and the wavelength of the scattered light that you're getting off. And for example, sesame oil has a known peak and um you know you'll for example there are online databases where you can look up oh i'm looking at sesame oil what does that spectra look like and it'll bring up a spectra and it'll say oh at this raman shift number this raman shift number and this raman shift number you'll you'll see a peak um you'll see like a, a peak in intensity um and that's kind of how you can tell what you're looking at does it get more complicated with kind of like organs and things like that? Because obviously they're made up from different amounts of tissue. There might be a bit more fat or a bit more muscle, something like that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So you can you can use Raman spectroscopy to pick out individual molecules and individual proteins. But you can also uh, use it to, for example, you can look at lipids in protein. So for example, if you were to look at liver tissue that has heavy metal poisoning, that would have an increased collagen peak versus healthy liver tissue because of um, fibrosis of the liver tissue as a result of that heavy metal poisoning. So, and that would be uh, because you can see a peak in like the lipids part of the, the spectrum. And in terms of if there's any similarities to physics, there definitely is. So I actually um, first came across Raman spectroscopy in my physics degree um I did like a literature review as part of my coursework and that's how I kind of came across it for the first time because when I was doing physics I was really interested in optics and lasers and imaging and even though I really enjoyed that I kind of felt like something was missing 
And then I did my literature review on Raman spectroscopy. And when I was looking into the applications of it, I realized that there was a huge biomedical field for Raman spectroscopy. And I thought that was really, really cool. Like I really like the medical and the biological applications of it. So I get to use a technique that I'm really interested in, but then I feel like I get to do something really cool with it as well. So yeah, so that's kind of how I first came across it in physics. And, you know, because it's it can be an imaging technique and because it involves lasers and lenses and a lot of optics, I've used a lot of the skills that I picked up in physics. Now, even though I'm in the School of Chemistry, and it's a very inter- interdisciplinary project, which is good. And I'm learning a lot <laughs> as well, because my <laughs> biology and chemistry knowledge is not not quite as good. So it's <laughs> so it's been really nice to be somewhere different and to be able to you know be surrounded by people who are experts in something completely different. You know, so I, I'm learning a lot and I've been really enjoying it. Could you talk us through some of the applications of uh, Raman spectroscopy? So there, in terms of the kind of not biological applications, um, it's been used a lot for identifying substances. So, for example, it's used a lot in forensics. It's used a lot in analytical chemistry as well for studying uh, like the structure and the molecular structure of different chemical compounds and things like that. Raman imaging is also common. And that's where you uh, kind of take your sample and you move point by point across the sample. And you use the information that you get from that to form a Raman image from each point. And that, that can be really useful as well. In terms of the biological applications, there are loads of biological applications. Just because Raman spectroscopy tells you about the chemical composition of your sample. And so it's shown potential in cancer research, for example, to identify cancerous tissue. You can identify bacteria with it, different types of bacteria. You can also diagnose different diseases, such as uh, Alzheimer's disease, by looking at tissues in different parts of the brain as well. And it's also great for in vivo work, uh, so uh, like in live cells and tissues. And the reason it's good for that is because, unlike some other techniques, you don't have to do anything to your sample to use Raman spectroscopy on it. You don't need to slice it up. You don't need to stain it. Um, you don't need to use like fluorescent labels or anything like that, which can often be toxic and not very good for tissue. So, yes, yeah, so it's really good if you want to look at live tissue or something that you don't want to damage. It's also used in um, like looking at paintings and like different kinds of paint and things like that because it, you don't have to you know like flake little pieces off of the painting or anything like that so you don't have to damage the artwork in any way so yeah so it has lots and lots of different applications <laughs> who knew that is such a selection <laughs> from kind of some of the material that you sent us and the research that we did it seemed like it was quite a collaborative project you're working with some engineers and some kind of industry partners to perhaps try and improve the the technique when it comes to working with biological samples. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So like I said, Raman spectroscopy is super useful and it has loads of different applications, especially for studying biological systems. But one of the main issues that it has is when you're trying to look at a sample that has a lot of fluorescence. And that's really challenging because the Raman signal is so weak and the fluorescence is so strong that the fluorescence often swamps the Raman signal that you're trying to look at. 
And so I'm working with an industry partner, Renishaw PLC, and I'm using a new type of detector as well that can separate the Raman photons from the fluorescence photons based on their time of arrival at my detector. And that works because the Raman photon always arrives before the fluorescence photon does. So this detector that I'm using can separate them in time. And it means that you're not kind of trying to fight the fluorescence to see your, your Raman signal. Right. So you still get the fluorescence, but it just comes later. So you can kind of you kind of beat it to the chase almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's really good because you can keep your fluorescence as well, because a lot of techniques try to reject the fluorescence or filter it out somehow. But with this technique, it means you can keep the complementary Raman and fluorescence information. So it gives you more information about the sample overall, which is really good. When you say there's a time difference between when the Raman signal gets to the detector and when the fluorescent signal gets there. How how small of a time difference are we talking about? Like how sensitive is this? So the Raman signal happens almost immediately after the laser pulse. So the laser pulse is well it's a pulsed laser, so it happens in pulses. And so the Raman impulse happens almost immediately afterwards on the range of picoseconds. And that's but that happens because the the way that Raman scattering works, which is what Raman spectroscopy relies on, um, is that the kind of photon is excited to a virtual state, which is super unstable. Uh, sorry, the substance is, um, which is super unstable, and so it immediately drops back down again to a lower energy level. And so what that means is that when Raman scattering occurs, the scattering happens super fast on the scale of picoseconds and so therefore the Raman photon arrives at the detector first whereas the way fluorescence works is that when the laser excites your sample there's a bit of a time delay on the scale of some nanoseconds depending on the fluorophore that you're looking at and also fluorescence has a decay so the Raman impulse is like a quick on-off kind of pulse whereas fluorescence is a decay and it gradually gets less and less intense as well. So you can definitely tell the difference between the two pulses and also the Raman signal arrives much, much sooner as well. So you were you involved in, in actually constructing this new detector or was that sort of the starting point of your project? Yeah, so that was the starting point of my project. So the PhD student who worked in the group before me, um, his name was Andrea, and he was the one who kind of built this detector and tested it and kind of characterised everything and showed that it is capable of separating the fluorescence and the Raman in time. Um, and so now that he's finished his PhD, I've kind of inherited the, <laughs> the detector uh, that he made. And now I'm trying to kind of take this detector, partner up with Renishaw and kind of show what cool things can be done with it. And what are some of the challenges of working or advantages of working with an industry partner? I was wondering whether, is there any like conflicts of interest? Because presumably they're trying to make money off this, whereas you're working for university. And then also the, my second question was to be in terms of expertise. So like, do they have expertise that you can't find at the university? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think in terms of conflicts of interest first, I think we actually work quite well together. I mean, of course, you always have to, um, for example, if we were to publish a research paper, I would have to state, oh, you know, that I'm working with Renishaw, just so you guys know. But I think it's actually 
a really good thing and they do have a lot of valuable knowledge that can help me um, and they've been really supportive so far so for example they have a lot of insight into what a customer might want from a Raman spectrometer which I might not I might not necessarily think about in my research sometimes and so they kind of give me an insight into that which is really useful so for example if someone wanted to use this technology to look at a tissue sample then Renishaw might remind me that it's important that I can minimise the damage to the sample, such as burning from the laser. Whereas mm-hmm. in my lab, if I'm looking at a piece of diamond or something, I, you know, it's not going to get burned, so that might not be something that I thought about before. So yeah, so they definitely have a lot of information that is really useful. In fact, when I started my PhD, there was, I was very lucky there was a Renishaw mm-hmm. engineer who happened to be in the building while I started. And he was servicing the Renishaw spectrometer that I sometimes compare my system to. And so he kind of opened up the machine and showed me like under the hood, (laughs) I guess, Uh, and like all the optical components and like explained how it all worked, which was really useful because normally the machine is locked and you can't open it because of, you know, the high intensity lasers and things and because it's very delicate. So, you know, that that was really good because they're kind of giving giving me information and help that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So yeah, it's been really great. So how, how has it been starting a PhD kind of during a pandemic? Yeah, so I think it's been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's been different, I think. It was definitely a different experience to what I expect. And I'm sure everyone, you know, in this situation is um, experiencing diff- something different to what they expected. Mm-hmm. But I think there were definitely some kind of challenges. Um, so I started my PhD in September of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been here for eight months, eight months, less than a year. And I think when I started, it was very, it was very different just because, you know, like the first time I met my group, for example, it was over a Teams call, like a video call rather mm-hmm. than in person. Um, and, you know, when I was, even though I had been in the chemistry building before, the first time I had to kind of go there to find my lab or whatever. I was just kind of wandering around <laughs> for 20 minutes <laughs> trying to find it, you know, because you, you know, you have to, to reduce the amount of people and stuff. I, you know, I found yeah. it by myself. So, yeah, so I think definitely kind of starting off was a little bit different just because, you know, you don't see people around as much. Um, mm-hmm. and for example, the lab that I'm in, uh, you can only have two people in the room at once. Um, and usually it's just me that's in there anyway. Um, so mm-hmm. it's a little bit less social I suppose like you see people around a lot less so it can be a little bit more lonely I think especially because I'm in the basement in the dark (laughs) (laughs) with lasers so it's (laughs) so there's the one so I'm new so I don't know the building layout the building is huge it all looks the same everything (laughs) is the same blue floor and the same white walls and all the doors look the same and and there's a different floor layout for each floor as well. Oh my! And there's a one-way system, so I I would just spend like an hour wandering around trying to find my lab and <laughs> no idea where I am. <laughs> it's a it's, it's been a learning experience. I know the building really well now. <laughs> <laughs> there's so many people that uh, like maybe uh, like engineers or people who are there to service something stop me and ask me how to get somewhere. And I have no idea. Like, I don't know. I just memorized the one route from my lab yeah. to the door and back. And that's it. 
Yeah, so when you when you wrote to us, you mentioned that one of the applications that you were looking into was to try and improve the rates of organ transplantation. What, so what's the issue with this and how is your project working to improve it? I talked a little bit about how fluorescence is a huge issue for ramus spectroscopy before. And uh, what my project revolves around is looking at liver tissue with my detector. And the problem with liver tissue is that it's extremely fluorescent, even for biological tissue, it's very fluorescent, unfortunately. And so what that means is that if you try to look at the tissue again, it's very difficult to do that with Raman spectroscopy. So what I'm hoping to do is I'm hoping to use the new detector with the time-resolved Raman to investigate the health of liver tissue prior to the organ transplant. Specifically, I want to look at the Raman signals associated with uh, the metabolic changes in the tissues, which might be indicative of transplant rejection later down the line. So basically, I want to look at the health of the tissue before it is transplanted into the person, which could significantly improve transplant success rates, you know, which is really important. And, and do they know which things in particular lead to organs being rejected, or is it kind of a lot of different things? Disclaimer, I am good with physics, but not very good with biology. <laughs> so my understanding is that the reason that organs are rejected is to do with the uh, like the immune system of the patient. So the immune system of the donee recognises that the donor's tissues aren't their own, and so the body starts attacking it. And that, that's why organ transplant patients often have to take medication to suppress their immune system afterwards. Um, and of course, that can lead to other issues. And so therefore, you want to make sure that your the donor organ is as healthy as possible, which is what I'm hoping to do. And also that the donor and the donee are well matched as well. How is it kind of learning these completely different areas of science, like chemistry and biology? Because I think they're notoriously things that people struggle with as well. Honestly, I'm I'm really enjoying it. And that's kind of that's actually part of the reason why I decided to do this PhD project, because I knew that it would be very interdisciplinary. And I really, I knew that I would really enjoy that from a previous internship that I did. And also one really good thing about it is that, you know, if I'm in my lab in the basement in the dark and you know, my detector is doing something funky for some reason. I'm getting frustrated at it or I can't do an experiment or whatever. You know, I can kind of put the brakes on on that experiment and I can go away and read some papers about organ rejection instead. Or I can I can kind of switch uh, gears, if that makes sense. So, yes. I, you know, so it, it means that I'm kind of more productive overall as well, because it means that I'm never kind of stuck in the one thing. Um, and I don't know, it, it, learning new things keeps it interesting as well, because, you know, I, th- I think we would get bored if we were doing, or I would anyway, I would get bored if I was doing the same thing every day. So it's, yeah, it keeps it interesting as well, which is nice. Are you even a particular fan of ramen, the noodle, or just... I actually really do like ramen. <laughs> Amazing. Perfect. Yeah, I really love Japanese food, so I actually really like it. Yeah. That's why I picked this PhD, nothing else. <laughs> yeah. you, you got confused, thought it was about ramen, and then here you are. <laughs> Do you have a favourite ramen place in Edinburgh? Ooh, that's a good question, actually. I actually really like... I If I'm ordering from like a Japanese place, I'll normally order sushi rather than ramen. Because mm. um, I love sushi. Mm. Um, but I've heard that maki and ramen 
is very good. I don't know. I've, I've heard I'm good not, things about them too. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure exactly where they are. Um, like people ask me to find places in Edinburgh, and I'm like, I've been here for eight <laughs> months, but I don't know where anything is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I also, I was going to make a joke about sesame oil and ramen, but I couldn't think of anything. <laughs> Honestly, I googled sesame oil ramen spectrum. I got Google images of like cup noodles and stuff. <laughs> oh, this is not what I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> that day as well. <laughs> I think on any other day I would have found it funny, but on that day I was like, no, I don't, I don't want this, Google. <laughs> Not the day for noodles, any other day. <laughs> <laughs> just to, to steer us back towards what we were talking about, <laughs> uh, we often ask the people that we interview what are their favourite things and least favourite things about their current situation. This could be like, well, for you, this could be like, I hate working in a basement or anything else. <laughs> my least favourite thing about my current situation. I think, I think probably, I'm sure a lot of people would say this, but probably pa- the pandemic. I think, you know, because I haven't been able to get out very much. I haven't met very many people in Edinburgh yet. Like I kind of know people from work, of course. But I haven't really made any friends here yet, which has been okay because, you know, everyone is kind of hanging out online right now anyway, you know, so I'm still able to like hang out with, have like virtual pub nights with my friends from Glasgow, which has been really nice. But yeah, I think that's probably my least favourite thing that I feel like I haven't really been able to really get involved in things as, as much as I would like to and kind of go out and like meet people and stuff. But, you know, like I said, I'm sure that'll, that'll get better and I'm, I'm, sure that's, that'll only be a temporary thing hopefully because of the pandemic I think my favourite thing is that I really like working in science like I don't know I've always been a bit of a nerd so <laughs> I just think it's really cool like I remember I used to go to the science centre with my auntie every year for my for my birthday that's my favourite thing to do and it was honestly like magic to me i thought it was amazing <laughs> um maybe i was just a bit dim but <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> but i thought it was like magic i thought it was so cool so i don't know i think i feel very lucky to be participating in that you know even mm. if it's you know even if i'm you know like just in my first year of my phd and i'm not you know like i haven't kind of contributed anything yet but it's i i still appreciate like the opportunity to kind of like add my little grain of sand to (laughs) our our knowledge of science you know so I think that's really cool I think that's probably my favorite thing big big thanks to Heather for coming on the show we had a really fun conversation in which we were introduced to Heather's extensive plant collection and her pet hamster so that was pretty cool we're always on the lookout for cute pet pictures and funky plant collections, so please share them with us. You can find Heather on LinkedIn, which we'll link in the show notes, and you can also read the paper that Colin Campbell's group published on the new detector, and we'll put that in the show notes as well. This podcast is brought to you by the Edinburgh University Science Magazine. In each episode, we explore fascinating themes and ideas, talk to awesome researchers about their work, and find out about the science being done by our very own staff and students here at the university. If you have any feedback for us, or if you'd like to get in touch with a question or suggestion, you can reach us on our Facebook page, Edinburgh University Science Media, or at our Twitter, at USCI. That's at E-U-S-C-I. You can also drop us an email at usci.podcast.gmail.com, and you can find the show notes and the latest issue of the magazine at usci.org.uk. 
This episode was hosted by me, Helena Kornu, and my partner in crime, Tom Edwick. The podcast logo was designed by Yusai Chief Editor Apple II, and the awesome podcast episode art was designed by Heather Jones, our social media and marketing genius. The intro music is an edited version of Funkorama, and the outro music is an edited version of Funk Game Loop, both by Kevin McLeod. Thanks for listening, and until next time... Keep it science!